Hi, Jen. Hi, Sarah. How are you doing? Where are you in the world? I'm in Indiana. <laughs> so, everyone, my little romance is taking the ACT, and um, this is his third attempt. They've all been canceled because of quarantine times. And then we got to the point where he's like, it would be great if they canceled this. Why am I doing it? But- <laughs> that, I mean, to be fair... Sure. Okay. He's so not wrong. <laughs> here, here's what you all don't know. Mr. Reed's romance is does medical school admissions. And so he's like, look, little romance. That's <laughs> funny. Look, little romance. <laughs> you know, he was like, if you do, if you take this, if you take it and it's great, it can only help you. It's, you know, like, why not do everything? Why you can? not spend six hours on a Saturday filling in bubbles? In Indiana. You know, I think <laughs> Again, you're not... we love you, Indiana. <laughs> Honestly, it's it's nice here. It's fine. So it's, yeah, I was like, you know what? I'm going to get a hotel room. We're going to spend the night so we don't have to drive as far in the morning. And I'm going to not sit in my car for six hours. So here I am. But how was staying in a hotel in quarantine times? Is there no one there? It's pretty empty. Yeah, that's what I figured. And then I checked in, and she was very apologetic. The pool's closed, and I was like, it's really fine. Does the Wi-Fi oh, work? Oh, you do love a pool, though. I do love a pool. That would have been nice. Yeah. It's not an epic fantasy, I will tell you that. There's no half-moon milk. Well, thank God for that. <laughs> um, okay, hang on. we got to do it right. Uh, welcome, everyone, to Fate of Mates. It is... Uh, episode who knows what of season two it's our first real deep dive of season. it's actually season three. Oh jesus it's season three see <laughs> a season in faded mates time <laughs> just like all the rest of time it's like 12 seasons in other people's times um uh yeah it's our first i think i mean like obviously we talked about 50 shades on the first episode but sure. we did it for a reason and it wasn't to deep dive on the book. No, it was um, like, right, what do we so, talk about when we talk about Fifty Shades of Grey? Yeah, and I think, so here's what I want to do. Before we actually get into the book that we're talking about, we have a couple things we want to do. One, we want to shout out a brand new podcast Yes, that we are wildly in love with. That is the Black Romance Podcast. Jen, do you want to tell everybody? So... It is a podcast that is an interview podcast, and the focus is on interviewing some of the most, uh, some, so far at least, some of the most famous black women who have been part of romance, both authors and then recently also Vivian Stevens herself. Oh, that episode. I know. And so we reached out to Julie, who is the interviewer, which ironically, everyone, she works very close to where I work and so when I sent her a message I was like in normal times we could get together and have coffee (laughs) (laughs) so this is Julie Moody Freeman and she's a professor at DePaul DePaul University which is near Jen it's also where Eric Selinger is a professor I don't know if they know each other but I yeah I was like (laughs) um can the three of us get together I didn't know that about Eric yeah I should have known that about Eric um this is so the podcast is amazing in part because so Sandra Kitt lives here. Um, and a couple years ago, I took her to lunch because I, I was I didn't realize that she lived here. And I was like, I need to know her whole story. Like, I want to hear about being Sandra Kitt in the 80s at Harlequin. And so we went, and a lot of you have heard Sandra's story now because she told that story again um, at the Rita ceremony last year. Um, 
when, you know, when she spoke at the Rita ceremony. And I just think, and so the oral history piece has, as you guys know, as all of you know, like this oral history piece is so important to me, largely because, um, you know, as we've talked about, romance really has gotten lost in terms of oral history, in terms of we can, we can still touch the beginnings of the genre and we don't have kind of Sandra Brown on record or Sandra Kitt on record. And now we do. And that's what Judy is doing. So she's interviewed Sandra Kitt and Beverly Jenkins and Brenda Jackson and Vivian Stevens. And she's really going, it's like she's going down the line and collecting the black voices of romance. And I'm so grateful that this exists. And it's it's just, I love listening. To, I've always loved oral history. I love listening to people's stories. And, you know, I've thought a lot about it because, of course, now with, say, like, Wicked Wallflowers is interviewing in authors now. Yeah. So we're going to have those voices of people who are writing now. But think about all of the people that we haven't interviewed. So this is such an awesome. It's so important. I know. It gives me chills to think about it. And I mean, obviously, we've talked about the Wicked Wallflowers, too. But, like, if you are interested in, like, the the voices of romance and their stories, Jenny and Sarah are doing that work, too. And so I'm so happy um, to listen to these. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, part one of Vivian Stevens was great. And I'm like, where's part two, Julie? <laughs> If you have not had a chance to listen to this podcast or subscribe or follow them on Twitter or social media, links and show notes. Uh, what else do we want to talk about? Oh, I want to talk about joy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you guys, a lot is going on in the world right now. Yeah. A lot. And Jen and I, over the summer, as we were kind of putting together the idea for season three, We knew we wanted to talk about the work of romance, which obviously we believe, I mean, if you've been with us for two years, you know that we believe that romance is doing a whole lot of work all the time. Um, But one of the things that we have kept coming back to and that I have kept saying to Jen over the last couple of weeks is like, romance is supposed to be fun. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to be joyful. It's supposed to bring us hope and happiness and it's supposed to remind us that love is queen and I think that sometimes we can get lost in that like we can we can lose sight of that in the world and so when we came at well we're going to do the work of romance and it's going to start in August or September of 2020 and we're going to move forward you know into the fall of 2020, which feels, I mean, it feels like we're in a, in a fantasy, in a, in a high fantasy, like walking toward a boiling (laughs) sea. And, um, so we want to honor joy yeah, as not just the work of romance, but as the most important work of romance. So many of us tell a story about sort of like growing up if you grew up reading romance, like sort of the secrecy around it, the the shame, the like, I can't tell, tell people about this. Mm-hmm. And one of the greatest things about the podcast and our listeners and now the friends that I've made through romance that are, you know, that I have group texts with is just this feeling of it, it being such a, it's something not only like my personal secret joy, but a joy that I share with other people. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm really grateful for that. I really feel like it's 
been one of the greatest things social media has brought me is like to the reading community I really value and the people that like care and love romance just as much as I do in every way. And that has been something really great. Yeah. And I think that also there is this, I mean, whenever we come, I think about my favorite episodes of the last you know, almost 100 episodes. And the ones that I have loved the most are the ones where we have, you know, laughed hysterically and, like, (laughs) unpacked stuff, but also just, like, talked about how much we love a trope for what it is, right? Like, for just the joy that it brings us, the way it scratches an itch or the way it, like, gives us just happiness at a time. And, look, we've all had these times. I talked... um, I talked about this in my, um, I don't know, I wasn't intending to talk about this this episode, but I will. Um, When Joanna Lindsay died um, and you started that great thread about. um, Oh, my first. My first Joanna. You know, I feel like, so that was December. We we found out in December um, that, that she had passed away earlier last year. And when you started that thread and I started thinking about, like, my first Joanna, and this isn't about Joanna Lindsay. This is just about romance in general. Like, I think so much about how I came to romance, and I'm not sure I've ever really, like, told this story. But my, you know, when I was in middle school, um, I have a brother, an older brother, and my brother um, left home when I was in middle school. And he just, he, like, walked away from our family. And, um, and that's hard. He was in, he was a older, he was in college and, you know, whatever it was happened. And I was, you know, 11. And that is a thing that if any of you have ever experienced anything like this in your family, you know, like that kind of breaks the family. Like there, there are a lot of wounds that come from that for everyone. And whatever his, you know, my brother is now sort of back, back with our family and it's all sort of in a better place. Um, but when you're 11 and that happens, you know, your family turns kind of to the child, your parents turn to the child who has had the most, who needs the most, right? It's that like old adage of like, you love the kid who needs it the most. And at the time I was 11 and like my parents were paying attention to something else. They were paying attention to like their family falling apart in some ways and now I'm sort of able, after many years of therapy, I'm able to kind of, and actually like being a grown up and like able to like see the world in a different way, I'm able to kind of understand all this. But like I was really alone when I was 11 and I didn't have like a great big family network. I think everybody on the podcast knows that I'm, um, my parents are both European. They were, I'm a first generation American. Like we didn't have an extended family. We didn't have, you know, any of that. Um, I don't think it's coincidence that I found romance then. And I don't think it's coincidence that, like, I fell in love with romance then. And, I mean, I was an awkward kid. I was kind of nerdy. I was overweight. I was, you know, a kind of weird. I was generally a weird kid. And then I had this, like, additional thing, and romance became, like, really my joy. Like, it became the thing that I turned to all the time when I was sad and you know, for that period of my life, I was pretty sad. And so when, I mean, all of this is to say, like, I'm, I didn't, I don't mean for this to be a depressing story. Like, 
in the wake of that, like romance really has become always the thing that I turn to for joy and the thing that I turn to for hope. And like, it means so much to me at that sort of basic level. Like I went to Smith and I like learned about feminism and I was like, romance is, you know, romance is about feminism and romance is about patriarchy and romance is about all these other things. But like fundamentally for me, like at my core, it's about joy. I don't know that. Okay, so like let's all bear our souls. I'm going to tell a similar story because I also found romance when I was maybe a little bit older. I think it it must have been the summer between seventh and eighth grade. I found like the, you know, the bag of books in my grandma's basement. But the reason we were at my grandma's so much is because my parents had gotten divorced. And I don't think it was until very recently that I realized like my family was so, it was so hard right? My family was so broken. And here was a place where like love could really literally conquer all. Yeah. And I think it got me through sort of emotionally a a whole time of my life where I just really, I mean, I remember like I would listen to like people fighting in my house and I would like read romance and like really feel like, you know what, it's okay. There's something better. Yeah. Right. There can be there's the potential that something can be better. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, that's I like that's so deeply rooted in my psyche. I don't even know how you could. It's knit in there. And it. I mean, I think part of why we have become so close and why this has become so important to us and I hope why it's become so important to all of our listeners. Thank you all so much for listening is because we sort of have a similar story of how we came to it, right? Like when romance is knit into you at that time of your life, like it's really hard to let go of that. Um, And I mean, not that I want to, like, but it's of course such a big part of us. And fundamentally when you're 11 or 12 and you're just trying to like find a place to lose yourself, like it really is about joy. So wait, can I tell one more story before you go? One of my favorite tweets ever, ever was Alicia Rye was getting her hair cut and the, her hairstylist was like, what do you do? And she said, you know, I write romance and the hairstylist just said, saving lives. And I was Aww. like, yes, God damn it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I really, I really feel that. I really yeah. do. I mean, and more now than ever right now. That's too. the thing, right? It's 2020. It really is like, I mean, if you're in California, it literally feels like the world is burning, right? And we're thinking of you, California. Um, But the the reality is that, like, everything feels like such a mess. Yeah. And, um, but not this, right? Like, this feels like no matter how messy it gets, like, it will be tidy in the end. And I think, like, that tidiness is so precious. It gives me a lot of hope. Like, not just joy, but hope, right? It's really, like, tied in together for me. <sighs> well, thanks I for guess. the therapy session, Jen. I know. You're welcome, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> They're but like, I, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> but I think it's, yeah, like, I just, I want people to know that. Like, wait, I can joke about 800 other things, but, like, at its core, like, romance saved my life. Same. Same. Romance is why I'm, like, able to function now. So, all right. But let's talk about this amazing bomb. 
bonkers book. <laughs> oh, God, I love this book so much. You, all right, so today we are talking about Millivane's A Heart of Blood and Ashes, which is the first in her Gathering of Dragons series. Millivane, by the way, everybody, is a pen name for Melgene Brooke, who wrote what I believe are some of the very best steampunk romances out there. Um, so although I, I really, right? I have, you would be hard pressed to deliver me a steampunk romance that I didn't love. Did you know that about me, John? I didn't know that about you, Sarah. I really love a steampunk romance and I don't know why, because I have no interest in that in all <laughs> other forms of media. <laughs> well, I think steampunk romance does it, does but it right. She so. wrote a book called The Iron Duke and another one called The Kraken King. And I mean, you really cannot go wrong with uh, Mel Jean slash Mila, but we are going to talk about A Heart of Blood and Ashes, which I think, uh, I, so this uh, is a, I know, I'm like, oh, you guys, so, so it's ridiculous. It is, I want to just put it on the record. This is a magnificent book. I've read it now twice in a, in a month. Yeah. And I feel like I could, it, this is one of the few books in my life where I get to the end and I thought I could just go right back to the beginning and start Absolutely. all over again. It is so fantastic that I anticipate fully that at our best of 2020, you and I are going to be fighting over who gets to put it on their list. Of course. <laughs> I mean, let's just, well, here's what we should do. We should just set it aside. You guys, yes. this is one of, I mean, this could oh, yeah. easily be the best book I read in 2020. So I I have said this on the podcast, so I'm not going to retell the full story, but I read this. So um, I was in LA on Valentine's Day, like two weeks before pandemic. And I had this book, some, they had mailed me this book, Berkeley, I guess had mailed me this book. And it was, it was before it existed in the world, I think. And, um, and I read it, I picked it up. I didn't have a book to read on the way back from LA and I got on the plane and I read it from like, I started it before takeoff and I finished it like right before we landed. And it was the perfect plane ride. Book. Yeah, I can only imagine. Um, it was magnificent. And also, I'm pretty sure I got COVID while I was on that plane. So worth yes. it. <laughs> you know, it's a dark time, these fantasy books. Um, yeah, I read it a couple weeks. Sarah told me to read it. And I, I so prevaricated. I did. the appropriate word for what it you is. did. Well, you know what? So now is the time maybe for us to talk about fantasy as a genre. Because I as a reader in general, kind of struggle with fantasy because I, what, you guys listen, I'm a bad reader of fantasy. Same. I don't, same. Right? I, I, mean, I think we need to say, I think everybody, look, I mean, <laughs> you want to talk about fossils. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Like all kinds of fucking fossils of animals I've never seen before. Like what the hell is going on? Right. I, I, I and so that's it. It, it really, it, it requires a lot of things from me as a reader, which I don't typically have the patience for. Now, I this is I will say this is the first and only book where I have ever said, gosh, I wish this book came with a map. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> reading strategies are for everyone, but I by have the way. to tell you that if it had come with a map, I probably wouldn't have read it. So <laughs> I bet it's online. But yeah, I'm like, give me a map. Give me, please, a cast of characters, a family tree. We all deserve nice things. <laughs> reading strategies are for everyone. Okay. Now, here's the thing, though, I want to start with, because I read a really f- fascinating thread, and I will 
I can't remember right now who wrote it. It was not really a, it's a romance adjacent person, someone I follow, who was talking about genre and they said something really interesting and they said, I'm really trying to wrap my head around genre because the truth is sometimes genre is determined by plot, like romance and mystery. And sometimes genre is determined by setting. Like fantasy. Like fantasy. And I... Have wow, been, that's mind-blowing. That's I, true. Yes. Be, and that's why you or can YA, have... Or YA, right? Yes. Like, right? Like, that's why you can have a fantasy romance or a mystery in fantasy, but you can't... Right? Like there, And I have been thinking about it nonstop, and I actually want to teach my kids genre units this year. Like, horror is... You know, so they were basically like, look, horror and fantasy are like settings, and mystery and romance are plot-driven genres. Well, you know we're going to have Victoria Schwab on the podcast. Yes. And she is the person to answer this question. Like, we yes. can really dig into it with her. And I'm really excited, to. And it also helped me, I don't know, like, kind of mentally get past being okay with saying, hey, you know what? I'm Exposition is just a struggle for me. Sometimes I'm like, I don't care. I care about characters and plot. And it helped me realize why I've struggled without then feeling like I have to admit to people that I'm a bad reader. <laughs> because I'm not really bad But reader, here's right? the thing about fantasy for me. I fi- I'm also a bad reader, right? Because I find it really difficult to ground myself in, like, a world that I cannot wrap my head around. The challenge with fantasy for me is not the, like, I wish I had a map, although I did wish I had a map. Um, my For me, the challenge with fantasy is, like, it's very political. Always. Yes. Right? Always. Like, I feel like that's, piece, that's a piece of fantasy always, this politicking. Mm-hmm. And... And f- weirdly, as somebody who is such a politics nerd in real life, right? right, the idea of, like, having to, like, restructure political alliances in my head and hold them all there while a n- whole other thing is happening right. is really hard for me. And maybe yes. that's because in romance, like, I mean, having read literally thousands of romance novels, like, I don't actually have to work that hard at holding stuff in my head. Exactly. I know how to build it out in my brain so I can access it when it's important. And then as I keep reading, understand character's orientation to that power structure. Mm -hmm. But I think that's why I want to get back to this book. I think that's why this book works so well for me. Because short of the fact that, like, I had to learn what a trap jaw was, right? Sure, whatever. 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 A big giant. As far as I'm concerned, a trap jaw is a very large alligator, like, the size of an elephant. Sure. (laughs) <laughs> this sure, is my period. problem i have to like mental model <laughs> like, wait what is this <laughs> that's also a good reading strategy everybody um, so and then like you know whatever what are they called the blood the blood thingies sure in the you know they're clearly zombies which is yes. fine so um anyway that that all said like so there's mental modeling going on with like animals and stuff but in this particular case all of the politics of the story kind of boil down very easily yes. to, like, straightforward plot, right? So let's talk about the plot. I know. It's like we should do a plot summary for people who are like, it's 20 minutes in. What the heck is this book about? I know. Well, we did have a therapy session to begin with. I'm That's sorry, true. everyone. I'm not sorry. I think it was important. Okay. So... Yvonne and Maddox are our main characters. You listened um, to the audio too, right? I did. And everyone, I'm going to give you a little pro tip. If you, like me, just like to listen to audio at its reg- regular recorded speed, 
I, I mean, I uh, some people like to listen faster, and I don't. Um, I was listening to it at 1.0, and it was too fast. And I feel like you can tell in the breaths of the narrator, like they feel not natural, like there's a little bit of clipping. So I put it at 0.9, and I'm convinced that actually the audio was sped up to keep it under 15 hours and not scare romance readers. Well, because this is a beast of a book. book. Yes. I mean, this is 540 pages, and the text is not. So, you guys, every one of them was required. It's fine. I write (laughs) really long. Like, as many of you know, I believe. Like, Nine Rules is real flabby, you guys. I know you. a lot of you like it, but (laughs) um, I write very, very long. And so, in order to keep my books to a certain page length, which HarperCollins likes to do, presumably for money, purposes. Sure. Um, in order to keep them under 400 pages, the text on my books is teeny tiny, those of you who read them in print, versus say, I'm, I mean, she'll admit it, Sophie Jordan's, like, Sophie writes a really tightly written, like, shorter book, like 80,000 words. Like, my books and, and Sophie's books are usually have a 25,000 word spread between them. Oh, interesting. But they run about the same page length, but if right. you open them both in print, You'll see you can why. see. Yeah. Now, this is Sarah McLean's size print here on this 540 page. Yeah, they're book. not messing around. They are not. It is a beast. It's also a beautiful book. Oh, yeah. It's so pretty. Yeah, it, it really feels is. so nice. It's got that like matte. Finish. Well done, Berkeley. <laughs> Jen and I, A plus on packaging. Also, wait, let's talk about this. I feel like we're on learning the tropes. Can you imagine if Clayton read this? <laughs> Aaron and Clayton, Clayton. You definitely Aaron, we know you them. listen. <laughs> you and Clayton should read this book. Um, but can we also talk about, like, this is great packaging. Oh, God, This dude yes. is wearing a leather, what would Something. we call that? Skirt. A loincloth? Yes. Like a kilt. And a leather like kilt. Like a fur. What would we call that? I don't know. I don't know. Hot. Like, <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> And he's like a little dirty and it's scruffy. Um, it's great. So yeah, it's so this is um what what's interesting is in the acknowledgments, Mila um name checks Alona Andrews, one of yes. Jen's favorites. My I favorites. mean I really love Gordon and Alona myself as people. Um, but we all know how I feel about fantasy. So <laughs> no Maybe urban fantasy. Urban fantasy. <laughs> I don't like it when they don't kiss, you guys. I don't like it. <laughs> so um, uh, no, but Alona is amazing. So she name checks Alona and she says, and uh, Mila says she wants to write a dark barbarian romance. And so I think that's that yeah. when I was like, oh, yeah, that's what this is. It's that's what definitely is. dark barbarian. So, OK, we have two characters. We're getting back to it. Yes. So Maddox's parents have been killed and they were the king and queen um, of, you know, their land. <laughs> This is where the, you're going to really see the detail shit break down for me. <laughs> yeah. Place. <laughs> Some place. <laughs> they were king and queen of their place. Uh, when you're the king and queen, you're called the Ran. Fine. So he is outraged, though, because when he finally hears about it, he's been out barbaring He's been warrioring. Sure. He comes back and has been told that they have um, been killed for something they've done that is, like, wrong. They've been accused, essentially, of well, his a father crime. His father rape. is accused of rape. And he knows that there is no fucking way his parents did that. And he is because, also— Because, wait, they had visited a neighboring— Right. They had received a summons from a neighboring kingdom. And so mm-hmm. the two of them had gone to this kingdom and been— sure. Presumably, uh, ostensibly tried and killed, but right. that's bullshit. Right. So he, and he knows then 
that um, he knows exactly who has who has killed his parents, but because of this fragile alliance between these realms, like he's basically a UN situation. Yes, he's told you cannot. You can't do anything about it. So, so what? Because he, there's a big bad coming. Yes, like there's right. Nah, I forget the name of it, but it's coming. The reckoning? No, that's made up. It's not the. the I was <laughs> the, like the darkening. The something inning. <laughs> as like something bad is coming. It doesn't matter. Something's nope. bad coming. Something bad bad is coming. I we should look. For, I'll look for the something bad guy. I'm looking anyway, right now. You keep talking. Okay. Um. So Manic hatches a plot essentially what he's gonna do is um kidnap yaven who is the daughter of the man who had his parents killed because okay important important note first important note yaven so this other a neighboring king did this like the head of a, a neighboring state and this state is really interesting because it passes um the, the throne yes. of this state passes down through the matriarch. It's a matriarchy. Yep. So the queen, the, who is now dead of this other state, um, had, to everyone's knowledge, five sons. Right. And no daughters. So this fought her. So this, you know, her king is now just sitting in state like. You know, right. presumably waiting for everybody to realize that, like, well, now that there are no queens left, we have to pass it to kings. Right. Except, lo and behold, there is a, well, a queen in waiting. So this is Yven. She, no one knows her. She, as it turns out, has essentially been locked in a tower with her mother her entire life. And she is going to be forced to be married by her father so that he can essentially keep controlling the kingdom or the queendom, I guess, um, by forcing her to marry one of his weaker enemies. And Maddox is determined to essentially kidnap her from her bridal caravan and get his revenge. And, And that has, like, a lot of potential layers at this point, right? He's like, if I... Marry if I marry her or get my child upon her, then my children will be, um, you know, the rulers of both of these areas. I, you know, it's all like complicated politics. Um, but I think his it is very clear that he views her just as a pawn, right? He what he really wants to do is get to Jalin, who's her father, and by kidnapping Yven, he is going to have the best possible chance of gaining his revenge against Jalin, the man who killed his parents and it's that's kind of where the book really starts for me right a lot of this politicking stuff um comes into play later and starts to make a lot of sense but at the beginning i was just like yeah sure go kidnap her the thing the big bad is called the destroyer and we don't know what it is it's coming Mm-hmm. It doesn't get here in this. This is like a clearly a massive like Mila has conceived of this as like a massive series. Um, and the it's like her accession, I assume. Now, the thing that's great about Yuven when we meet her is we have this expectation that she will be weak. Yeah. Right. She's been hidden away. 
know, she's been hidden away and put it in my veins. And instead, (laughs) and she is physically weak. Okay. She's like real weak. She's like, she's like sallow and like pale. She's clearly at one point in the book, she says like, I don't remember the last time my belly was full. Like, so, and I, I love that scene where she's like, he's like, give that, she's eating like rancid meat, like something disgusting. And he's like, give that to me. You're not like, you're clearly going to make yourself sick if you eat that. And she's like, fuck you. You will like, you will not not take this from me. me. Like I'm, I, I will fill my stomach. Um, we should talk about, maybe you want to do it. The relationship between Yvonne and Maddox's mother. Oh yeah. Well, wait, we have to talk about the, 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 like how this is a vengeance play first. And then we'll get there because we have to talk about the tongue. Oh, so well, okay. that's see, but you can't talk about the tongue until you talk about his mother. All right, fine. We're going to talk about his mother. Okay, so Yvonne, so it, it becomes very clear at the very beginning, this is not, you know, whatever, this is part of the setup, that Yvonne is the one. So they were summoned, Maddox was out warrioring, and uh, his parents were summoned to this neighboring state and they were summoned by letter and it becomes clear almost immediately that the letter that they received was not from the king it was from Yvonne herself and she says at one point like I didn't summon them you know for I I didn't summon them for the kingdom I summoned them for me meaning she has had in her head a plan to set in motion from the very start that she was going to marry Maddox but she knew in order to marry Maddox um that she had to convince his parents that she was worthy of him. Now, remember, her father is a fucking monster and has been keeping her in a tower, not feeding her, not letting her exercise. At, at some point, it becomes clear that um, that he has made it impossible for her to be able to run. He has cut off her fingers, like two of her fingers, because she learned to be, well, she learned to be a remarkable um, um, archer, and she shot her te- one of her terrible brothers and killed him. Jolin, her terrible father, does take the finger, but he's not a hero, and now I'm really conflicted about our favorite saying. I'm just going to go no, ahead no, and no. tell you. Yuck. <laughs> this is not taking the finger in any good way. She knows that she needs time with the king and with Maddox's parents to convince them that she is, quote, a warrior queen at heart. So in come the parents, and we are led over the course of the book to understand that she has become really beautifully connected to his mother. His mother was a remarkable archer. And, like, oh, when he strips the um, linens from her arm— and, like, realizes that, like, she's covered, um, Yvonne is covered in scars, like, in, in like, recent wounds that come from learning, I guess when you learn archery, you wear a brace on your arm um, to protect the, the inner skin of your, of your forearm from being harmed by, you know, the, the blowback, not blowback, but, like, the, Sure. Whatever the string. recoil, whatever the recoil of the string of the bow, and so she's covered in like marks from the bowstring because his mother taught her how to shoot an arrow. I mean, like it's clear, and then there's, you know, there's just all this stuff that comes of it. Um, of course, he is not predisposed to trust or believe her, and I mean, who can blame him, right? Like, she comes from nowhere, like saying she can't stand her family and um and she says to him at one point like I knew you're like she she brings up his mother 
and with love. Like, you you can tell that she, too, is broken. Like, at some point, I mean, her mother's, his mother's death was horrific, and she witnessed it. And, like, she is wrecked by this um, because this is a woman who cared for her in a, ta- in a place that had no care for her at all. Um, that was only pain. And she brings up his mother and he looks at her and he says, if you ever speak of my mother again without my asking, I will rip your tongue out. <laughs> and and he means it. This is not hyperbole. No, right? he means it. And yeah. she she knows instantly that he does mean it. And then there are a couple of moments where she makes a mistake. And she starts to talk. And at one point, like, he actually grabs her tongue. And, like, and I, and there's so much about this that it's just remarkable how much pain, emotion, like, emotional pain Mila packs into these characters. Yes. To, like, constantly amplify trust between them. But I feel like we have skipped ahead because (laughs) the most important act the like act that brings them together in the first i mean it's 70 pages in and it is and they are he he is furious i mean he cannot get out of his own rage and uh let's talk about the blood hand job well we have to talk about her killing her brother first well yeah of course right where where do you think the blood is coming from from. exactly (laughs) i think you know what here's the other thing i i want to say at this moment we have this clash of two characters who are both so convinced that their own pain has Well, actually, let me put it this way. Maddox pain is so great, he is convinced no one has ever experienced pain like his, and he just wants to, like, make people hurt the way he is. Yes. While Yvonne has experienced the kind of pain none of us can actually imagine, and it's just thinks like this is my lot and all I'm gonna do is keep fighting and no one's gonna stop me and this what's amazing is the love story in this is not built on sympathy or empathy these are two people who are in deep deep parallel pain who somehow find a way to trust each other and then love each other and it is fucking fantastic that that is exactly right. And it is, and and it's so at this moment, and God, it's like everything is so richly layered here. So at the moment that essentially Maddox saves her, or right, he's going to kidnap her from the caravan, and he thinks, I'm the big bad coming along to kidnap her and take her away from this man who's going to marry her. And she sees it as an opportunity. One of her brothers, who was part a party to injuring injuring her injuring Maddox's mother you know essentially He's her brother's also a fucking monster a bad guy right what Yvonne, when given the chance stabs him uh, it's so great too. It's because he's uh but it's when she stabs him right yes. because he's he's basically we've we established that Maddox cannot kill these people he's basically been told like if you kill them you're out That's right. like you're That's you're right. out of the UN <laughs> Right? Like, we don't, we can't protect you from what's coming, right? Mm -hmm. Which, again, I forgot what that fucking thing is called. The Destroyer. 
Well, nobody will help you when the destroyer comes if you kill these other people. And so he knows he can't kill them. And this other man, her brother, also knows he can't kill them. And so he is like, he's like that asshole, like, you know, frat dude from all those movies. Taunting. and and, Just taunting him. And he says something about Maddox's mother. And Maddox can't have vengeance, right? He can't pull his tongue out, which is what he threatens to do to Yvonne, right? Like, he can't do anything because he's been prevented. But the second the words leave the villain's mouth, she stabs him in the back and, like, suddenly, and her her wrists are tied together. Like, she is the instrument of his revenge, from the fucking beginning. And it is so fascinating because this scene is in Maddox's point of view. Ah, it's so good. Well, the brother drops and she's standing there covered in blood. And he is, it, here's the thing where he is, oh God, it's so good. He's like, I am, this is what I wanted to happen. But who in the fuck is this woman and how could I possibly trust her if she's going to kill her own brother by stabbing him in the back in front of me? But it, so his confusion, but then she takes right? Ownership, like yes, my God, she is the strongest character. She is She's like amazing. She is she is like what every romance heroine has been like building toward for fifty years because she yes. is so strong. And when she does it, she turns to the like warriors of her own people and says, "You did you see what happened? Did you see who killed him? It was me. Take that story back." Like, make sure everyone knows I'm the one who did it. You and I both watched The Witcher, which was not Jennifer, but Yennefer. And I was like, I just want every heroine whose name starts with a Y to know that you are my fucking hero. Thank you, Yara. Because, <laughs> right? It's it's this amazing scene where she is, like, for the first time, able to really claim that being the queen, Right? And she said, like, this is where it begins for me. My brother and my father were dumb enough to let me out into the wild, and I'm going to take every chance I have, and I'm going to use every opportunity I can get, and I'm going to do what I have to do to, yes. to, to lead my people. So she is covered in blood, in the yes. blood of her brother, in the blood of both of their vengeance. Right? Because what we don't know at that moment and what Maddox doesn't believe for a very long time is that his parents' death are also hers to avenge. Right? So they are both, they are each other's instruments of war. I mean, it is fucking great. Right? It is fucking great. Anyway, so she's covered in blood. But you gotta seal the deal. You gotta seal the deal, She's covered in blood. He has a hard-on, which Mila refers to as, like, just one that comes from anger and not desire. I'm like, sure. Sure. It's kind of like when women cry when they're really angry, I guess. Men get a hard-on. So he has has an erection, and he's like, you have to, he's like, all right, if we're going to do this, if we're going to get married, we can't have sex because in the world-building of this of this fantasy in order to you have to the the there's a goddess um vela vela who requires virgin blood as a sacrifice so the only so when you are a virgin in this world oh also by the way vela punishes rapists which is great like oh and yeah the, and like, amazing. it's known like she's like if you if you are a rapist like she's gonna fucking come for you yeah, Which all this I mean, moon huh. stuff I loved, right? I'm for so, it. I'm for it. Yeah, you, of course, you're like actually vibrating in your chair. Like, yes. 
If you're a virgin, you have to lose your virginity. This is for everyone on the night of the full moon, and that's 14 and days shed and blood. From there. So, of right. course, ladies, it's fine. And men, like he says that when he when he lost his virginity on the night of the full moon, he like pricked his skin, like he shed blood, like you know, men cut themselves open, which I really like too. So I was like, there's a lot in here that's like I feel like. I have the same id as whatever's going on here in this book. <laughs> anyway, so she, so they can't have sex because she's never had it before. And she needs to have, so here's the thing. It's a matriarchal line. So in order for her to take, to become queen and claim the throne, she has to have a child or turn a certain age, but who cares about that? So she has to have a child. So there is, um, there throughout this book, there is a thread of about like fertility and like what women I mean and I kept going back to that bodily autonomy episode we did yes, Jen because like me too again it's like 50 years in the making Millivane is like I'm gonna really nail fertility as like a theme it here. is I, so I if I know that we're all over the place but I don't care there's so much to talk about this book but so basically, there's this. So so maybe go to the hand job, and then I'll talk yeah. about. Yeah. Oh, that. we haven't even got to the hand job. Okay. So they can't have sex. We're this is like a two hour episode. I don't care. Um, we they can't have sex because we explained it <laughs> because moon reasons. Because the so moon. he's like. <laughs> So they can't have sex. So then, um, so he's like, all right, but I have this problem. And she's like, I got you. And she gives him a hand job With her hands tied. Lo- with her hands still tied because he doesn't trust her to untie her. So she gives him a hand job, and the lube is the blood of her brother. And it is, well, I got to say, so I was on the plane. <laughs> It was one of those moments where I was like, is this, am I reading what I think I'm reading? Oh, my. (laughs) Oh, but we didn't talk about the fact that, like, two or three pages earlier, he licks the blood of her, like, he licks the blood from her arm and fingers. Like, yes, there is so much about this that should be yuck, but is very yum. Well, and she (laughs) even says, like, he's, like, harder, and she's basically like, this is, like, the blood of my brother, and he gets harder. Yeah, like it's vengeance. Are, yes. It's vengeance. Like, right there on page. I mean, you all know that I, <laughs> I mean, like, there is no amount of vengeance that I don't adore, right? But so when, and she says, like, when she says, uh, hang on. So this is, I, here, marginalia, this, I did not write this week. It just says vengeance is their bind. I literally was writing in this book from the second I started writing, I started reading it. Like, it's so... Um, it's such a remarkable book, but basically, so she says later, she says, um, I will be your queen and I look forward to the full moon when we're going to do it for real. Yeah. For when your seed takes root, we will have the vengeance we both desire, right? Like sex is tied up in punishment, is tied up in vengeance, is tied up in all sorts of things that are not love for these two. Like, they know they have got to get this done for their own, for the future, for their kingdoms, for their own sanity, like, for all of this stuff. And it has nothing to do with their hearts and 
damn it, Millivane doesn't care. <laughs> so good, you guys. I'm like, it's amazing. So this happens, and then he, but then like, in, so he's like, fine, that's done. Very perfunctory. Great job, everyone. And then she, he's like, I still hate you. And she's like, that's fine. And then he puts her on a horse. I mean, like, we're literally only 100 pages into this book. I don't know how we're going to do it. I don't um, care. We're just going to go and go and He go. puts her on a horse, and she starts, and she's never ridden a horse before. And what we don't know at this point, right? So we know she's lost two fingers. Um, we know, but we don't know that she is, like, she's unable. Like, her her father has, her father and brothers shattered have, her have yeah. shattered her, her knee to the point where, like, she is unable to run. Like, but now, if you've ever been on a horse for the first time... You know, you probably were on a horse for about 30 minutes and then your ass hurt for four days after. And the reality is, is that they are riding through. It is what he said. He he sort of names it as like, this is the hardest ride you'll ever have. And she's like, of course it is, because I've never been on a horse before. But I want to confess that, as I think you all know, that I am I have a heart of, like, stone-cold ice when it, re- when it comes to reading romance novels. Like, I don't cry. I don't cry when I write them. I don't understand people who cry. Right? I cried on page 81 of this book when I first read it because he says they, they pull her off the horse after, yes. like— 12 hours or something and she's stuck she's she stuck. stuck there her bl- the blood and seed her tension, and his like, hands right essentially are so buried in the mane of this horse that they have to cut the horse's mane to get her hands off of it but also and- she's so rigid because she's had to do this grueling ride right right and he says um he lifts her you know she falls and then he he lifts her up and he says you must walk though it hurts right like you have to walk it off and she thinks to herself though it hurts this was how she'd done everything her entire life so she would do this too and i cried yes. like i teared up cuz yes. i was like this is the story that this book is telling us like pain like Women's Women pain, pain. Women's and pain. men not listening. Now talk about half moon milk. Yes, because this. Th- oh God. So, he- oh, you guys, Sarah. <laughs> it's I, so good. It's, it's so, so good. good. So, <laughs> you guys, honestly, if you have not read this book, like I know some of you are out there and you're like, "What the fuck is happening?" Just read if it. If you have not read this book, I know you didn't do it because you were like, "I don't know about fantasy," and this guy's this- wearing fur and he's dirty on the cover. That is all true, but it is really, truly a remarkable book. It is a remarkable book. It brought me so much joy to reread it, even though everything in it is so hard. So, But this this continuous thread of her pain being, her just fighting through it so bravely and him not ever understanding because he doesn't want to what it is like for her. So one of the, the things about this child that they want to have is he wants to be very sure that it's his. Sure. And even though she says, I'm a virgin, this could, you know, this could be a pretense. So in this world, there's something called the half moon milk. And essentially, warriors can be men or women. Oh, 
great. It is great. Like, it's just one of the things and that so, happens. And two of Maddox's closest warriors. His like, dragon. Are right? women. Yeah, his dragon is what's called essentially the his closest warriors, right? This group of people that are his personal protectors or bodyguards. And so warriors who are women take this half moon milk, and essentially it's like a two-part cocktail, right? You take the half moon milk and it's going to essentially force you to have your entire menstrual cycle overnight. In one night. Because you have to take a sleeping draft with it. Yes, right. And then you take the sleeping draft, so you take it at night and then you essentially have your entire period overnight and then the sleeping draft essentially takes away the pain. And they say, and so Maddox, like, we need, she needs to take this because if we're really going to do this, I want to be for sure that any baby is mine. There, there can be no. Because it can be in small doses, it's, uh, uh, it's birth control. In large doses, it, it is an abortificant. Right. And so he was like, I just need to make sure that this, uh, for, for political reasons, right? Not, it's not really about. No, he doesn't care. He doesn't care. He's like, I just really need to make sure that if we're doing this, it's mine. And everyone will know because we did this thing, half moon milk. And so his warriors say, well, we don't have the, you know, they tell him we don't have the sleeping draft. And he's kind of like, tough shit. How bad can it be? She does too. She's like, I don't care. Right. Because she also knows. She's like, I've been through so much. Give me that fucking thing. Yeah. I mean, I've had... My fingers cut off. My kneecap shattered. Like, I've had to live with these fucking monsters my whole life. I had to witness the death of people I loved. Like, yes. I I don't care. But it is... (sighs) But tell everyone what happens. (laughs) Well, so she... So it's terrible. It's terrible. And he is so horrified by her pain, which is so bad that she passes out. In his arms, on his horse. In his arms, on his horse, and he has to... But before she passes out, you're in... Again, Mila makes these brilliant choices around point of view. Like, if you are trying to learn... Jen talks so much about point of view. If you are trying to understand, like, what we're talking about when we talk about point of view, this book is a great example of, like, really making those critical choices. Because she could have put this in her point of view and shown you the pain, right? Right. And talked about the pain. Instead, she puts this in his point of view. They are on his horse riding. He is cradling her like a child because one of his, like, most trusted warriors basically said to him, like, this is going to be awful. You hold her like a child in this. And he can hear in her breath the pain. Like, he's so attuned to her that in this is, again, like, I don't know, page 100. Like, we are nowhere in this book yet. And he is so completely attuned to her for vengeance. Like, everything is about his concern. Like, when, and there, everything starts to get really twisted because as a reader, right, we're all romance readers, we know what this means. Like, we're starting to see that he is unable to not care for her, right? Like, he is worried about her. But in his mind, he's worried, well, she can't die, right? Because she's my only hope. And it's so twisted and beautiful the way that she knits these two just broken souls together. There's another thread that's bubbling up, which is in Maddox culture... There is no such thing as lying. Mm-hmm. So, which his mother told her 
was basically like, you can never lie to him. You can never lie to him. And her mother had also had this sort of ability to see beyond, right? She could be up in the tower and look out and see what people were doing. And so she was able to essentially, like, tell Yven all about the world around her. So this is something Yven, like, knew, but it's very hard to sort of toe the line. But what we're also starting to see, and this is the part that's fascinating, is the way that Maddox looks at a situation and tells himself a story about what he sees happening, and it becomes his truth without him really understanding her truth. That is the genius of this point of view. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is an example of... um, You know, he essentially cannot believe that she's bearing this pain so stoically. And he and she tells him a queen can never cry in public. No one can ever see a queen cry because it is her job to remember that the pain of her people is always greater than her individual pain. And so she just has to bear that. It can't be about her. And he, like, hears this but doesn't understand her. And this is, like, a a persistent theme throughout the book. Here is a man who gives lip service to always listening to the truth but will not see her truth. It's only his truth. And at one point she even says to him, "Um, why ask me questions if you always doubt my answers? Mm -hmm. Yes. And this dilemma between the two of them is, I mean, he has essentially said to her, I, if you voice your truth, I will rip out your tongue. And this is so, you know, so they're bound together in vengeance, but this inability for him to really see, I mean, it's like the patriarchy it's pure patriarchy. Maddox yeah. character. I was just going to say, he's like the purest alpha yes right and the the you know i'm i think we're probably right at the same place like that like page 200 area place and he one of the things that i really adore is when he looks her dead in the eye and this is right after he like actually grabs her tongue for having spoken of his mother and she and he says um, your size and your longing say that you want more than a bedding, but if it is love you seek, look to our children. Look to my people and to yours, as you are so adept at securing their loyalty, but do not look to me. And then we're still in his, like, there's this ju- this remarkable sense of, like, this is all I'm interested in in giving you. I am willing to give you my vengeance. I'm willing to like allow you to stand next to me as partner in this this goal. But I will never love you. Like this is not I do not feel feelings about you. Other people can feel feelings, but feelings are beneath me. Here is a world that has put on page so much power for women. She will be queen. This is her birthright. Um, you know, she has these opalescent eyes that people find very hard to look at. She, a goddess sees through her. Um, he has women warriors. And yet, mm-hmm. the, the response of men in this book to women's power is to be even more domineering. Yes, except... Milla Vane figures out a way yes. to thread the needle. Like, 
So, okay, that scene that I just described, right, the quote that I just read, ends with her saying, I get it. I'll see you on Moon Knight, right? Like, I'm out. Like, they had been sharing a bed or such as it is. And she's like, you know what? Fine. So she goes and she lays down with his wolves who keep her warm. His dogs keep her warm with all of his soldiers. Like, she just goes and sleeps, like, where everyone else is. And she's wrecked. Like, she's she's sad. She, yes. She cries. And... And but she's basically like, fuck you. Like, if I'm a vessel, if like I'm a vessel for your vengeance, then I will see you on the moon. The next more that literally the next page yes. is a new chapter in his point of view. He gets up and he finds her dead asleep next to his wolves. And he instantly calls to somebody and is like, make sure that she gets to eat alone so that she gets all the food she needs. Like, he can't handle it. It's like that constant sense of like, I can't handle feelings. I am totally unable to, like, control my feelings. <laughs> and the threading of it is so deft that when you, as a reader, have just come to the edge of the knife and you're like, fuck this guy, I hate it, the next sentence twists it. Well, and he is still sort of convinced that she has done him wrong until he gets down and all of his soldiers are treating him like he is such an asshole. And he's like, what did I do? I might add, she tells him the truth. At the beginning, she says, they won't like you if you treat me like shit in front of them. She actually says, I would hope you'd treat me as a dog. You seem to treat your dogs better than than me, right? But when they, but his soldiers think that he has sent her to sleep with the dogs. Yeah. As opposed to her choosing it, right? I mean, there's so many layers. You know, animals are always symbols. There's so <laughs> many layers to this, right? Where it's, oh my God. Well, because here's the so thing. So good. Yvonne is a beautiful, beautiful queen. She is the yes. she is the absolute perfect queen. That scene with the zombies, the blood, whatever. Yes. In the like where she so she can't run, right? We don't right. know we don't know that until then, and he doesn't know that. And he still doesn't quite get it and then either. Um, she can't run and she gets trapped in a field, like a foggy field where there are like blood, like zombies coming for her. And there are these wolves that are trying to protect, like his wolves are trying to protect her. The dogs are trying to protect her. And so she's, she demands that the people who control the man who controls the wolves call them. Like she, she is just so utterly aware of like, she is nothing but loyalty to people, right? Including him. And he's so dumb. Instantly. And then, and when he comes, he, of course, comes to save her. And I want to talk about that, too, because he saves her so much. And it is so romantic. Like, even in the moment where you're like, he's pissed and this is just going to be messy. Like, it's breathlessly romantic every time. It is calling on some of the greatest romance tropes that you and I have talked about in this podcast, right? Sacrificing his horse for her is just like um, a a kingdom of dreams. The injuries on her arm from the archery is just like your book, every book where a a heroine goes off to to fence and gets injured. I mean, these ideas are, it is completely building in the greatest romance tropes. Oh, it's so romantic. But in this fantasy world where he is able to 
ride in on his horse and sacrifice his horse to save her and then says to her, I'll never do this again, right? He doesn't even realize what he's doing, but we do. And it is so perfectly done, Sarah. It's unreal. All right, so we talked about the goddess. Um, Let's talk about, can we talk about heads? <laughs> it's so IAD, right? Do we think that Melavane is a Cressley Cole fan? <laughs> I, I mean, here's a bag, here's the head of your enemy, right? I mean, I mean he promises her the, like, the heads of her enemies on spikes. And then, and then delivers them. He delivers them like a boss. <laughs> Amazing. You know what, though? I think it's also interesting how a lot of these tropes are, like the the moon one. Okay, I, we were joking about it earlier, but one of the things I was also thinking is, in, in IAD, the moon is about werewolves. It's about men. And here, the moon is really reclaimed by women. I mean, and let's, I, look, We I don't talk about astrology on the podcast ever, but like, the moon is owned by women. Like, that is, if you know anything about astrology, like, that is what is, that is what the moon represents. The moon represents your relationship with your mother, for God's yeah. sake. Right? Like, so, <laughs> there's, like, there's so much codified about the moon here being about women. Women. And then I do think, I, I think it's valuable, Jen, for us to talk about what happens to her fertility-wise by the end. So, this is a pretty big spoiler and also you know, probably the most, prob- it's the part of the book that w- that was really hardest for me. Yes, me too. So, I mean, this isn't the end of the podcast because I still have other things to think about, but here we are, right? Yeah, but I think if we're, we're going to talk about fertility and I think we need to put, put the button on it. Well, I think there's a couple things that happen that's really interesting. There's this huge buildup to the moon night, but Well, they meet the goddess. They meet the goddess, right, who says to Maddox, if you can't get your shit together, you're going to lose her and she's going to be in more pain. And he, of course, can't really hear her. And um, that night they go to meet essentially an ally who they're hoping to get to their side, but another one of her evil brothers is going to be there. And there's this amazing scene where she's like, I'm going to teach you how to handle shit in the boardroom because I know you know how to handle shit on the battlefield. And instead, when they get there, she is the one who completely cannot keep her cool. And she, this time, shoots, throws her dagger at her brother, right? And blinds him, right? Like, gets one of his eyes. Very, very awesome. And, but that night is the moon, and, but Maddox knows that her brother is going to come for them. So he sets up a big decoy with, like, fake lovers, and he's going to be there to kill her brother. And he reaches her on the moon night, but, like, as the moon is setting, right? The sun is rising, the full moon is setting, and he has to get inside of her, you know, before it happens. And he fucks it all up, right? Mm-hmm. Like, he, she's not ready, and, you know, there's no time for foreplay. But that's not the real problem, right? The real problem is he essentially says to her, like, God, I don't worry about it. I know you killed your mother, but I'm sure it was justified. And she, it's, she's been hoping all along that they had been making progress. And then this is a moment where she's like, my brother got to you too. And he's like, no, 
No, we didn't, right? Yeah, like, I, I, it's fine. It's like, it's fine. I, I understand. Get it. I'm with you still. I have still. made this, I've made this truth. Yeah. Right? Out of these little breadcrumbs of information. And she is so furious and so angry. And so um, the next day or whatever, he has to go off and he's going to try and kill her father. And she is. God, Sarah, it's so good. She's kidnapped by her own father. Like, it's all a trick. Mm-hmm. And we're skipping a lot of plot. It doesn't matter, because what we really want to get to is, all along she is known, never drink or eat anything with my family. They will poison you. I And so... Which is she's why still- she's never had a full belly, because she's always terrified that she's going to get killed. Because she's a liability. I mean, she's the only... She's the heir. And so her father takes a drink of something after he's kidnapped her, and she is like, okay, well, it must be safe because he wouldn't have had it if he couldn't have. And it's three doses of half-moon milk. And at that point, she'd been hoping she was pregnant. It's unclear if she really was, which I think is a smart move. And she drinks the half-moon milk, and this would force her to have an abortion if she was pregnant. Mm Mm-hmm. And her father sends the bloodied sheets to Maddox and says... She did it herself. She did it herself. So to have her father essentially force an abortion on her. It's a a lot. Yeah. And also, it's so powerful now in the world. Like, it feels like this is what happens to us. Like, we don't get to own our bodies. And the fear that comes, like, there's also this real fear in her mind. Like, she's afraid that he'll believe it, right? Like, because he's made truth of fiction before, thinking that he was doing her a solid. Like, and she's, and she knows that if he discuss, like, if he does believe it, that's the end forever. It's, and what's crazy about this as you're reading it is you're kind of nervous too. Yes. Like, oh shit, this could go, like, how is this going to work out? Because he has not shown himself to be a really, like, thoughtful feeling haver. (laughs) He is, right, not believed her before, right? Now, this is the point where maybe it's a really good idea to talk about something else that I thought was just really amazing in this book, which is how important the senses are to them. And I, what I mean is, like, so this idea about speaking and, like, tongues and, you know, if you aren't speaking honestly and, and you're and not, it's not a straight out lie. It's like a sly word. Over and over again, there's this, uh, something they say about, like, the things that you have to say that are best said and the things that are best left unsaid, right? Um, her, she has these extra sensory abilities. She doesn't even realize she has, like, her mother to see beyond, right? To look out and see. She thinks she, so, yeah. the, the Moon reasons. Right. Um, the All of the queens of this realm have what they refer to as moonstone eyes, right? And the idea is that they are clouded. Their eyes are clouded with the vision of Vela, the moon goddess. Um, and as gift, so Vela can see through them, one. But Vela's, like, payment for being able to see through them is giving them a second sight, a sort of ability to see what is not seen, and she doesn't think she has it. She doesn't. Well, because she's never been able to use it. She's been trapped in the tower, right? Exactly. And 
I th- and so I thought a lot about how, like, it's a fantasy world, but like how earthy everything is, right? Mm-hmm. Like everything depends on what you can see and what you can taste and what you can hear. And and yet at the same time, and that seems to go hand in hand with this idea that you would never lie, right? If you cannot perceive it, it must not be true. Yes. And he seems to have a real Real. What's interesting, though, is the balance is that even when he meets the goddess, right? Like they have this awareness, this keen respect for this goddess, right? Yes. Um. There, there's a deep fear in men for this goddess, like, um, which is you know born of a need for consent, which I think is a real smart like 2020 move. Um. But there's a real fear of like. But also there's there's at the same time, there is a real sense of these men are afraid of women. Like, yeah, they're afraid of what is unknown and what is unknown to men is women, like how women work, how how women's bodies work, what they how women move in the world. But at the same time, Maddox. So there's this deep rooted respect for something that cannot be seen and cannot be understood. And also a kind of base. Requirement of like I have to see it to I have to see it or touch it or eat it to know. And I I think that that's the part then so then how terrifying that this woman can see things you can't see. Can mm-hmm. understand things you can't understand or know. Well, that's the fear that comes with women. Yes. And the whole I mean the entire book is packed with this fear. People are afraid of women from page 1 of this book, right? Like afraid of queens, afraid of matriarchy, afraid of like weak women, right? Like keeps like for the first hundred, hundred pages of this book, Yvonne is referred to as weak from the, from this, from the jump. She calls herself weak too. And this idea that like all, anything that is attached to womanhood is weak and terrifying. Um, because how poss- how could it, how could it not be terrifying because women have in some ways like there's a weird double perception of women as both weak and immensely powerful and because we don't understand it how could they be powerful without muscles and therefore they are terrifying and it's feels so real like it feels so real yes it feels so rooted in in, in this time and the way that we're fighting, right? So when we talk about work, right? Like, this book is doing so much work. It's, it feels so authentically present. You yeah. know, we, we started the season for a reason in 2010. And because we wanted to talk about how the last decade of romance has really just, like, blown the doors off what the books did before and I feel like this book is it is a gift to romance in that it shows both the bones of the genre it it plays with so much that we love and so much that gives us joy and also really articulates so clearly the true panic and despair of being a woman in the world right now like we can be queen we are do a kingdom like we are we are heirs to a kingdom and, and yet, we cannot have it and yet the things that Yvonne finds so beautiful what she wants 
right? I mean, she wants a family. She wants And love. she wants love. And there's one of my favorite parts of this book is, you know, she's constantly, like, I've never seen rain. I've never experienced wind. I've never seen people. And one of the things is she's somewhere and she sees a woman who's old, who has wrinkles on her face. And she says it's the most beautiful face she's ever seen because those wrinkles come from smiling. And what a gift it would be to, like, live a life where you have smile lines on your face. It's and it was perfect. It is perfect. And also, Jen, she wants to be heard. Yes. She doesn't want to be silenced. Like, she wants... That's why the tongue keeps coming back into play, right? Like, her biggest fear is that he will take from her... Yeah. The only thing she's ever wanted, which is yes. someone to listen and believe. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if the word of women, if like in 2019 and 2020, it feels like believe is the word that we are all just screaming all the time. Like, what is truth? Why? Why can't people see the truth in us? Why can't people hear the truth in us? And I just feel like she is, she is screaming all the time and no one is listening until he does. And it's really interesting because remember the the whole, you can't talk about my mother thing is really rooted in this belief that he, she, if she had really approved of Yven, she would have left Yven her crest. Right? And it turns out that Yvonne has had it all along, but has basically... Well, he would never have believed it. Sure. He's, he, you know, that's the other lie he tells himself. If she had this thing, I would believe her. And what she says to him then is, you would have told me I'd stolen it. You would have thought I'd taken it from her. And so he, she is furious, right? She's like, you don't believe me. You think I really... You, not only now do you think I killed my mother, but you told everybody that the lies I... I lied, but it was justified because we were enemies. Like, you've created this whole story that now makes me someone who is a liar. And she, he's going to ride off, right, and go save the day. And she's like, okay, you said that there should be nothing left unspoken. So here it is. Your mother gave me this thing. Go away. And it is devastating because he has no choice but to take off and now all of a sudden he the blinders fall off of his eyes right back to those senses now he is the one who can finally see and he is wrecked at what he has done to her mm-hmm. and then she you know that when he finally does get back to her she really thinks he's going to kill her right he's she's like just make it quick yeah and, oh god damn now it's so good can't i'm real mad at this book because <laughs> it's so fucking it's perfect so good i mean it's so every word is so measured yeah every sentence is so thought out she is doing a thousand things a thousand i we could have a whole nother podcast and talk about all the other things we didn't talk about in this book. yeah she's doing a thousand things in this book it's so brilliantly done and if anybody is in film out there, oh my like, God. you're looking for the next Game of Thrones, fuck Game of Thrones. 
Like, seriously. This is absolutely outstanding. It is an outstanding book. And it and it's clearly setting up. I have not read the second book. It is actually the thing I'm going to read next. Um, because I didn't want to have it in my head until we had recorded this. But it is, I mean, like, clearly she has an immense plan because the epilogue, just going back to this kind of, um, this idea of, like, pregnancy and fertility and, like, line and lineage Mm. and, um, so they have chosen not to have a child until, um, this war with this big bad is complete. Yeah. And I think that is a really fascinating choice. And it's something that like, I have thought a lot about, I mean, like I, I'm really, you know, I, we did not have a child until an Obama presidency and we were a no children family until then. Um, And now I think a lot about like how hard it is like, look, this is real and, and kind of dark, but like the truth is that I often think like, what have, what have we done to her? I think about that all the time. What have I done? Why? What have I done? Cause I love this thing so much. And like, I'm, I'm unable to give her the world that she deserves. We often in romance think about the baby log as being like proof of the happily ever after. And in this book, this decision to have a baby that they're going to make is instead about even in the face of the world being imperfect, we can decide to bring more love into the world. Yeah. Yeah. But they are not doing it right now. Oh, yeah. But like one day, right? But it's, Well, they're like, we need to get the world in order first. Yes. And yeah. I think that is really powerful. And again, it was another moment where I did not cry, but I definitely teared up. Like, and I definitely felt like it felt really real. And like, there's something, I mean, what, look, I feel like a broken record, but like what she is doing with this book, we talk so much about how romance represents a time, right? Mm -hmm. These are books of times always. always. And there are, you know, over the last two seasons, we have read a lot of books that we have felt still held up. Like these are books that still feel powerful in some way, but this book feels like it could only have resonated this way for me now. Like, I think I would have loved it 10 years ago, but today I'm like, this is my, I mean, I want a tattoo of this just like on my body. Like I, Mila, I know that you know that we're talking about this book today, and I, I there, I definitely would never recommend an author listen to a podcast that we do about their book because that sounds sure. horrifying. Like, and I apologize, but I hope you know, just I mean, like how grateful I am for this book in this world. Like the idea that it was the book, the last book I read before I got real sick, and then the world closed down. Like it has given me an immense amount of like joy and, and sort of aware. I want to just say like, I feel real seen by this book, even though like, I'm not, I would definitely die in that foggy. Like the zombies would totally get me. Oh, can we also talk about the part, the part where she, this is like just me. Okay. Who are, like, oh. 
the part we have to have the end where we talk about like little things we loved because there's so many little things we loved go ahead the part where he wakes like she's it's right after they they get off the horse for the first time and they've slept together and he like just slept together and he she's wrapped in his arms and she wakes up and he's covering her mouth because there's like that beastie is in the camp ready to eat a eat a horse and she's like shake like vibrating with fear and he's just like a rock of like warm certainty behind her like he's like I got I've got this like you're going to be safe you're like <sighs> <laughs> All right, one of my so I I didn't notice this until I listened to the audio that Yvonne, when Maddox wants her to come when they're having sex, he tells her to fly with him, but he also uses the word fly when they're about to go into battle, and the fact that like fighting and fucking are like right next uh, to each other in this I book all throughout it. is amazing. Well, because fucking is about like it's yes. It's, base just so primal yeah it's just like war like this is a community my warrior queen is both of those right (sighs) my warrior queen my god (laughs) okay we gotta talk about the cockmonger (gasps) oh yeah let's do it i just want you to know there is one and it's amazing (laughs) and she makes fun of like basically she's like would you like a dildo and I love it. Like in a town square. Yes. And Yvonne's <laughs> like, that one looks like it's a good size for him, but it's kind of smaller. And Maddox thinks she's dragging him. And then she's like, how do you make it grow? Ah! <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, vindicated. Thank you. It took a turn back to where I needed it to be. It was amazing. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. I mean... Then at the end, I mean, we've already, I sort of vaguely said this, but like, I'm sorry, but when he brings her the heads on the pikes, when she sees him coming from the tower, oh my God, the whole, uh, that whole scene, like the, from the moment she sees him and like her fear. Also, we forget he's nearly dead. He thinks he, he thinks he's died and like, she'll never love him. Well, and he essentially agrees to like turn himself into a zombie if you get one of those things gets you, you turn into a zombie, but, the, like, the last thing you remember is, like, what you're going to be. And he's like, just let, don't kill me because I'm going to wake up and go, like, all I'm going to have in my mind is her. And I was like, ugh. There's so when, much to love. When, oh, my God. When he, at the end, is like, I've got to get back to Yvonne before he turns agrees to be turned into a zombie. He doesn't actually turn into a zombie because... The cockmongers. Vela stirs her finger in, like, basically a bottle of something the cockmonger gives them, and they use it to, like, save him, right? But he's like, I have to get back to her. I have to tell her how I feel. And all his soldiers are like, you fucking dummy. You left things unsaid. Mm-hmm. Oh. When the fr- yeah, because the friends are like, what do you mean you didn't? What, what, do you what mean the you fuck is wrong her? with you? You left things unsaid? That's not how it works. <laughs> I mean, especially for warriors, right? Like, yes. There's just this constant sense of, like, ur- urgency, this idea that, like, tomorrow the world might be over and therefore we never leave anything on the table. We put it all right. out. All on the, yeah. I mean, like, it makes you want to suit up. Like, yes. Yeah, we put it all on the table. Yeah. And you know what, though? Make sure you register to vote, everyone. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) At the end, though, like, the other thing I think is so important is he's coming to her rescue, right? But that, like, she rescues him right back. But 
he knows that she has an arrow ready to go to shoot Jalen, her father. Mm-hmm. And he gets him in the right exact position so that she can have her vengeance. That this time he is going to be her tool of vengeance. That they're going to, like, save each other for real. Like, right? It comes right back full circle. Oh, God, this book's perfect. Well, and then... When she does say, like, when she's still not sure, and I mean, like, right up till the end of the book, she's not sure. Like, she's like, he he could still want to kill me, right? Like, I think there's something really powerful there, too, because we have seen so much in romance recently about, like, or in the last few years about, like, well, the hero, like, they fall in love, you know, early enough that, like, they trust each other. Like, she's... She wants him to love her so desperately, but she can't believe it, right? Even right up until the end. And then when she says, like, do it quickly, and it just destroys him. And he says, like, do you not know I would tear my heart out before I would ever hurt you? Like, how have I ever, how is it possible? Very Lothair. She's got to be a Cressley fan. I mean, she's got to be, right? <laughs> I don't know. I think so. So many things reminded me. In I mean, the I best feel like the, the lost limb count of this book alone. I mean, rivals. I, I kind of want. I might bring it back for this episode show notes. Actually, you just got. You just want a reason to read it again. <laughs> Fair, I do. <laughs> I mean, and she is just devastated. Oh, oh my, my god! And then at the end, the happily ever after here. Yeah. Just going back to how smart I am, by the way. Yes. Um, <laughs> Happily Ever After here is, he says, always I will listen to you. Always I will hear your words. I shave my beard because you never have to tug on it till I get me to listen to you again. <sighs> I mean, mm. Millivane, I mean, you, you did it. Great job. Now I have... Um, I'm not ever writing again. <laughs> that must be hard for you. I don't have that feeling at all. I'm like, everybody just read this book. I thought it was, you know what? I think back to this whole idea of like fantasy, it, this could not take place in a, in a regular, a contemporary or even mm-hmm. a historical setting, right? Mm-hmm. You, in order to really elevate these huge themes, you have to put them on a different playing field. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea of, like, a dark barbarian, yes, like, we're living through dark barbarian times, but to explore these themes, you have to actually put it somewhere different. Well, we have talked so much about, you know, in this time, I know you and I have talked about, like, what books are working for us and what books aren't. And I think a lot of people are going soft, which, you know, great job, everyone. Soft is lovely. But, like, I'm going real hard like yes this is the book we've been wanting right and I yeah and I I mean that's why when I finished it I called you and I was like Jen listen to me this is it this is the (laughs) book um and I think that for me fantasy allow like fantasy just gives you a place to sort of release all of the oh I don't know how I feel about that oh is that like that makes me feel a little uncomfortable that's like oh I don't love that like all of those feelings that really become kind of squeaky when you're reading contemporaries right now that are like harsh or like rough where the heroes are tough and rough like in this case like of course he's tough and rough there is an elephant-sized alligator ready to bite his horse in half like 
what the hell else is he going to be? Like, if he's weak, we're all in trouble. Right. There's magicians. The destroyer's coming. And so— And then I think, like, one step down is the historical. I do think, like, we can still sort of pull off these, like, big themes— Without, like, with a slightly less, with slightly less care for, like, what feels squicky. And then I just think in contemporaries, it's just a lot harder right now. And I think that's the thing about this book that is so perfect is I can explore my very real fears about what the patriarchy wants to do to people who are, who are not them. Strong, right? Who are not them. And it feels so epic And yet it's hard to even wrap my head around it in real life, and yet I can do it here. Yeah, but because it's so huge in this book, like, it it evokes such powerful emotion from us as readers, right? Like, the idea that I might tear up in a book is so foreign, but, like, I did multiple times here because it feels like, oh, my God, I see myself. I see the world in this, like, which is... I know sounds crazy and really bleak, but like really is is gives gives me kind of great hope too. Yes, like right. my God, the covenant that she has, she carries the covenant with the reader so beautifully through this book. Because you really do have to trust her. Yes. And she honors it so much. And at no point did I feel that she wasn't really taking care of me. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's powerful as a writer. Um, all right. What's next, Jen? Serving Pleasure by Alicia Rye. One of our favorites. God. Alicia Rye's... Alicia Rye. She is a terrific writer. So Serving Pleasure is a lot different than this one. Um, it's an erotic romance. You're going to love it. And we are super excited to unpack it and talk about um, why it gave us joy. Yes. Oh, my God. And it will give you all joy, too. Um, okay. So this is Faded Mates. You can find us at fadedmates.net. Um, on fadedmates.net, you can find, obviously, all of our episodes, um, transcripts for a lot of our episodes. Linda and Gwen are working on transcripts for us. Thank you so much, Linda and Gwen, for being so great and, and being so willing to help. Um, you can get gear from Best Friend Kelly, um, pins from Best Friend Kelly, or Jordan Denae has a great Faded Mates t-shirt, tote bags, etc. Um, you can find links to that under the merch section of our website. Uh, we are produced by Eric Mortensen. I don't know. Go out and fight a dragon, everybody. I don't yeah. know what to say. Register. Make sure you're registered to vote. Um, make sure you've requested your absentee ballot if you are planning to vote absentee. Um, if you have time to write postcards to voters, find postcards to voters. If you have time to make calls, make calls. Um, Text banking. Yeah, this Leave is it. Leave it all on the table. Uh, so we will be back with you next week uh, with an interstitial. Yep, but we don't know what it is yet, I don't think. Um, But it'll be about joy. It'll be about stuff that we love. And in two weeks, we're talking about Serving Pleasure with Felicia Rye. And then we'll be teeing up lots of great interviews with people we love as we head into the election. Yeah, joy joy season, as we like to say. Mm. We're going to be here for you. Yeah. As things get, you know, tougher. We'll bring you heads on bikes. How about that? (laughs) 
<laughs> I hope. My name is Kate. Thank you so much for the podcast. It is so much fun to listen to every week, and it's just like, just, it's such a pleasant, uplifting experience, especially now in the middle of uh, quarantine, which is no fun. But so I wanted to tell you about one of the books that led me, and that's Slave to Sensation by Nalini Singh. So I started reading romance exclusively a, a little over a year ago. Um, I had read off and on, but this was like, okay, I need ATAs now, and I'm tired of all these depressing books. And then I just fell into romance, and I never really stopped. Um, I kind of started with the Sinister series by Stephanie Lawrence, which you talked about, and I adore wholeheartedly, but the book that got me into paranormal romance was Slave to Sensation. And I read it because it was like, I don't even remember how I came to it, but it was available to borrow on my study app, and I just could not put it down. It was so good. And then I quickly read all the other books in that series, mostly out of order. And then I read them again in order. And I think I'm going to read them again now because I just love them so much. The world building is so good and I can just escape in some for a little bit and people are in love and happy and it's all terrible things are happening, but it's all going to work out. And it's great. And everybody needs more um, jaguar and leopard shifters in their lives. Don't you? Okay. Thank you so much for your podcast, Sarah. I also love your books, and I think they're great. Um, Resident and the Beast is one of my favorite books ever now. And, yeah, you guys are awesome. Thanks for all that you do. Bye.